Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 28. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Redpoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are happy you could join us today, and please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with James Norman, Senior Legal Counsel for Budweiser Brewing Group in the UK and Ireland. When our guest was a young boy, he wanted to be a steam train conductor. However, his path has been quite a bit different. After receiving his master's in law, James entered the British military as an army lawyer for five years. His next journey was in the dairy business, which after some years led him to an open opportunity at Ab InBev, which is more well known as the Budweiser Group. What would be your guess as to whom James would love to have dinner with, either dead or alive? Well, keep listening to this podcast and find out. James, thank you very much for joining us today. We're thrilled to learn about your story and find out a little bit more about you. Thank you, Daniel. Before we get started, let me just ask you this question. If you could have dinner with anyone who were either dead or alive, who would it be and why? So if, I think if I was going to pick anyone, I'd probably pick Warren Buffett because he is a prolific observer of businesses over many, many decades. And he has built an amazing encyclopedic knowledge of business. And he understands very well consumer brands and has invested in many of the greatest consumer brands in the world. So from my point of view, to learn from, he would probably be the, the number one person I would love to learn from. Yeah, I'm sure. And that would be fascinating for sure. I think his insights over the generations have been spectacular. When you think of in your personal career path, is there a particular, I don't know, maybe funny story or experience that you find yourself when you're out with friends having a beer that you tend to tell over and over because it sort of was that, that funny instance? For me, earlier on in my career, I spent five years in the British Army as an army lawyer. So uh, the Army Legal Service in the UK is a bit like the, the JAG Corps in the US. And as part of my training, I did a course at Sandhurst, which is the military academy over here. And when you pass out from Sandhurst, you have to go passing out parade around the parade square. And we were, the group that I was with, we were preparing for our passing out parade. And our company sergeant major was a Coldstream Guard sergeant major. And the Coldstream Guards, you might know, they are one of the guards regiments that uh, protect the monarch, so in those days the queen, and they are kind of the best of the best at this kind of thing. And one of my platoon, when we were running through this, the company sergeant major just told us that we would be following the adjutant around the parade square. The adjutant would be riding on a horse, and we were learning, obviously, to march in very straight lines. And somebody uh, put their hand up and said, uh, Sergeant Major, what happens if the horse shits on the parade square? while we're following it. And the sergeant major looked up very straight in the eye at this person and said to them, if the horse shits on the parade square, you will march straight through the shit. You will follow the horse. And that has stayed with me because on the day in question, we did have to do exactly that. And it stayed with me because it's actually quite a good metaphor for working life. Sometimes you have to follow the horse 
and you have to follow the horse wherever the horse takes you. Yeah, no, that, that, there's something there. There, I think that's a, that's a great story. No wonder why it stuck with you. That that's awesome. <laughs> so moving on a little bit, tell us what you wanted to be when you grew up, or when you grow up, what do you want to be? So uh, I'm not sure what I be what I want to be when I grow up, but I spent a couple of years when I grew up living on an island called the Isle of Man, which uh, is between England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. It's in the middle of the Irish Sea. And uh, the Isle of Man is the real-life place that the island of Soda, which for anyone who's got young children and knows the sort of Thomas and Friends stories, will know as the place where all the steam engines on Thomas and Friends come, come from or where they live. And the Isle of Man actually still has steam trains. So when I was living there, Back in the, in the 90s, I grew up in a place which had real life steam trains puffing around. So I wanted to be a steam engine driver because I assumed that this was normal and that you could just, you could make that your career. I've now got two young children of my own. So I, I find myself reading and listening to these stories with them a lot. So I'm, I'm reliving my, uh, my desire to be a steam driver or a steam train driver, I should say. That's great. Listen, you, you only know what you know, right? You do. And, and it, of course it, Thomas and Friends is another great brand that has been built up over many, many years and uh, one that I've got a great deal of respect for. Yeah, for sure. And how did you end up sort of selecting this profession in terms of your study of law and your passion for this? I went to university here in the UK and I, uh, I started off, I think, doing politics with law and I realized partway through my degree that I had to get a job at the end of my degree, which was a, a revelation that most students, I think, come to at some point. And so it, it made sense to me to kind of focus on the law part because there seemed to be, be more reliable jobs in that than, than politics. So I didn't, I didn't kind of jump into law with some great mission to perhaps solve all, all ills in the world. It was, it was pretty pragmatic. I went on a kind of a curious path. Um, I, I trained and qualified at a, a law firm in the city of London. So that was pretty standard. And I ended up after working in the city for a few years. Deciding that I wanted a change of course, I went to do, and worked in a think tank for a year in Westminster, and I met my wife there. And then I went off in the army for five years and travelled all around the world and and had an amazing experience as an army lawyer. And I came out of that in uh, in 2015, and at that point I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do commercial law, and after a couple of jobs, I ended up at a company here in the UK called Dairycrest, which was acquired soon after I got there by uh, a very large North American dairy company called Saputo. And at Saputo, I worked with some amazing consumer brands. There's a brand here in the UK called Cathedral City, which is one of the, well, it is the largest dairy brand in the UK, and, and they make the most popular cheese in the UK. And while I worked at Saputo, we started exporting that, that to the US and to Canada. So you can now buy Cathedral City cheese all over the world. And I learned a huge amount at Saputo about consumer brands, and it gave me a real deep respect for the level of care and trust that goes into creating successful brands. Because if you're dealing with particularly with food or with drink, anything that goes into someone's body, the level of trust has to be absolute. And I remember on one of my first trips to one of the, the creameries where we made the, the cheese, going and seeing a, a machine that was uh, putting together packs of cheese uh, for toddlers. And it struck me then, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but the cheese was x-rayed on the way in and it was x-rayed on the way out. And it was x-rayed because in the highly unlikely event that a piece of metal fell off the machine, it was vital that that was caught 
on the way out before it made it into a pack of cheese so that a toddler didn't end up uh, swallowing it. And I think for me, that's always stuck with me as an example of just how much care goes into the great brands that we enjoy every day in our lives. And so what I've come to conclude is it's a great privilege to, to be a part of that process because really we're as brand leaders, we're in a position of great trust and the public trust us and want, you know, want real consistency, quality and care to be taken in the products they buy. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I think to your point, one of the most concerning things in the industry when I think of brand protection is in fact, to your point, things that go in your body or on your face from a makeup perspective, but those mm. things that you ingest are, are certainly, you know, at risk, right? So tell us a little bit how your journey happened from, from the dairy business to the uh, beer business. How, how did you make that transition? So I'd been working in, in dairy for a, for a few years and I was really enjoying that. And the dairy business is going through a, what do you might call a secular trend where people are consuming less dairy and they're looking particularly in Europe, I would say, to dairy-free alternatives. And the business that I worked for was going through that change and really embracing it. And I was really impressed by how that was happening. But all the time I was conscious that I was working in a relatively mature category and I wanted to broaden my experience and the opportunity came up to work for AB InBev, which is more commonly referred to here in the UK as Budweiser Brewing Group, because Budweiser is probably the, the leading brand that we have. AB InBev ourselves are the number one brewer in the world. So we have a, an amazing position across about 500 different brands. And the opportunity came up to work at Budweiser, and I took it with both arms because for me, it was a natural pivot within the, the food and drink category from a mature category that was going through some interesting changes to another part of that category, which was slightly perhaps more developed in a way it was embracing those challenges. So whereas in, in dairy, you have dairy-free and vegan alternatives, in beer for a long time now, we've had what we characterize as NABLAB, so no alcohol beer and low alcohol beer. And what I've seen, what I saw before I joined AB InBev and what I've seen in all the time that I've been there has been the amazing level of care that's taken to listen to consumers and see what the consumer wants, putting the consumer at the heart of our business. And I find that really inspiring on a day-to-day -day basis because we're always looking to learn from our consumers and ensure that we're completely responsive to their needs. Well, thank you, James. And, you know, I think just in the last couple of questions that we've discussed, I find your sort of passion for the brand and your passion for the consumer interesting. And I've spoken to a lot of brand protection people and IP lawyers, and you don't often hear that passion. And uh, as a former retailer myself who is passionate about brands and consumers, I find it really sort of enlightening and heartening to hear that uh, from you. So very, very nice. Thank you. For those who are listening to us today who may or may not be as familiar with Budweiser, you know, what you guys do, where you're based, you know, what countries are you in, maybe share a little bit of the quick company profile. Certainly. Yeah. So AB InBev is the, the number one, the largest brewer in the world. We're across the globe. We have an amazing portfolio of over 500 iconic brands. The sort of three global brands that I think almost everyone has put in their hand who drinks beer from time to time would be Budweiser, Stella Artois and Corona. And then below those brands in the portfolio, we have a number of uh, local heroes and gems which are treasured by local markets. And that 
I think is a huge part of the strength of what we do is that we have global brands and Budweiser, I'm sure we'll talk about more later on. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge deal at the moment because we're in the middle of the FIFA World Cup and everyone around the world knows Budweiser. But we also have brands here in the UK. We have brands like Camden Town, which are really loved by the UK audience. We also have, I should say, because as a, an IB lawyer myself, this is something that I, that I take a, a niche level of pride in. We also have a beer here in the UK called Bass, spelled B-A-S-S. And Bass is the, the number one trademark in the UK. And what I mean by that uh, is that it was the very first trademark to be registered in the UK back in the 19th century, which is something that I've always taken a great deal of pride in, that the business that I work in has that, has that amazing historic trademark. That's awesome. And I will share that I have, I have tested that product several times. It's, it's a great beer. It, it really is. And I think the, the funny thing about beers like Bass is that they can come in and out of fashion and different people like them at different points. We have another beer in the portfolio similar to Bass. It's called Boddington's. And Boddington's was known in the 1990s here as the cream of Manchester. And I was, a few months ago, I think it was the, the Friends uh, sitcom anniversary. And I was watching an old episode of Friends uh, with my wife. And there is a scene in Friends where Ross... Uh, is recalling drinking Boddington's, and I, I can't do the accent quite right, but it's raving about Boddington's. And it, I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here is that these brands, they endure, and Bass has been around since 1876, and I'm sure it's got many more years left in it. Yeah, for sure. And when you think of some of your most difficult tasks you do as the senior legal counsel there, what would you say some of the challenges you face on a day-to-day? So... I think the kind of the biggest challenge that we face is supporting and developing the equity and the integrity of our brands, making sure that everything we, we do as a business strengthens and protects those brands. I always think of the role of the legal department, which I lead here in, in the UK and Ireland, as being part of our mission is to think long. I just said that Bass was, has been around since 1876. And so it's been through a lot of Ultimately, it's been through a lot of lawyers' hands since 1876. And part of my job, I see, is to be a custodian of that, of that brand. And practically speaking, what that means is to make sure that deals that we may be doing with that brand ensure its longevity and don't undermine or in any way dilute its, uh, its amazing heritage. And when you're working in a, a business that's, that's very um, ambitious, as AB InBev is, key challenge that you have to face all the time is how you ensure that you fulfill the targets and the opportunities that you've got while also thinking long for the sake of those brands. So I can hand Bass on when my time with the company comes to an end to my successor and so on. And it will, it will continue to endure as with all of our brands. I think that's my kind of my overarching mission in terms of kind of day-to-day things that are, that are real challenges. We're always thinking here about how we ensure that our brands remain relevant for the future. And a key part of that is ensuring that we're a sustainable brewer and we want to be the most sustainable brewer in the world because that's the right thing to do, but also because it's what our consumers expect of us. So navigating that transition into a fully, fully sustainable brewery is incredibly challenging because there is a lot of regulation now here in the UK and in Europe more widely about 
we call greenwashing, which is how you market your products as being environmentally sustainable. And you can't just kind of make specious or spurious claims. Yeah, those are some huge tasks for sure. When, from a timely perspective, Budweiser has been a World Cup sponsor since 1986. And obviously there's some challenges and opportunities from uh, an IP standpoint when becoming a World Cup sponsor. What's your thoughts on those? So it's an amazing privilege to be a World Cup sponsor because it puts your brand front and center at a place that, that all the world's eyes or most of the world's eyes are on every four years. For us, it brings a number of challenges. There is a simple challenge that there is a, a greater than ever amount of work to do because our marketing teams are working very hard to ensure that our brand has the, uh, the place that we would like it to have, both uh, currently in Qatar, uh, but also in the eyes of consumers and in the hands of consumers around the world. For us as a, a legal team here in the UK and Ireland, the UK is a really proud footballing nation. So we are, we're working with our brand teams uh, that cover the home nations of the UK. So I, I don't know if you're aware of this, Daniel, but the UK doesn't play its football as the UK. We play it as the four home nations. So England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And in this World Cup, England and Wales have qualified for that World Cup. So we're ensuring that our, our campaigns are appropriate for the English and Welsh fans. We're extremely proud that Wales have qualified for the World Cup for the first time since 1958. And Budweiser is brewed at our brewery in Maydor in South Wales. So it's a huge deal for us. But as I said earlier, we, we run a lot of promotions at this time. And some of those promotions might involve fans getting tickets out to uh, Qatar. So we have to ensure their safety while they're out there. We have to ensure that they're looked after that they have a good time. And there is a significant team of my colleagues out in Qatar at the moment, as we're recording this, doing just that. And I'm full of admiration for them because it's not a holiday. It's a really hard time to be out there and to be, you know, working with all the, uh, the challenges that have been well documented in the, uh, in the news lately. Let me ask you another question. I mean, that's, that's certainly interesting. And I think if, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. played Wales in, in the opening match, so. Yeah. But uh, it's a very, very, uh, it's a very live issue. This as to uh, yeah. as to how our teams uh, are performing at, at any one time. I'm pleased to say that for the sake of this podcast, that it was it was a one all draw. So uh, yeah, that was that was probably a good yes, thing. yes. And listen, I want to ask you a quick question, Christina uh, Metropolis, who's the director of external relations for anti counterfeiting at Inta, the International Trademark Association. She was our guest on our podcast, the one we released just before you. And she had a question for you that she wanted to learn about you, which was, if you could be anywhere right now, where would you be? I think if I could be anywhere at the moment, I would be in Qatar because I think it, it would be such an interesting place to be, to see our brand Budweiser on this amazing world stage and to be with the fans who are enjoying it in the fan zones in Qatar. I think that would be where I'd like to be at the moment. It would also be really nice because I'm in the UK at the moment and it's about 10 degrees and I would love to be in Qatar where it would be just a little bit warmer. It's minus five where I am. <laughs> Is there anyone who inspired you during your career? I've had a number of really inspiring uh, lawyers and, and other professionals that I've worked with. One of the most inspiring I had was my trainee supervisor, 
Michael Dolly Bray, who I actually still work with because he, he works here in the UK, the law firm that we deal with quite a bit. And he taught me a lot of very useful things at the start of my career that I've, that I've carried with me throughout. And so it's, it's really good to still be able to work with someone years later as a, as a client, their firm that you've dealt with earlier on. And I think the single most important lesson that I probably learned from him early on as a lawyer is that you've always got to be conscious of the product that you are producing for your client. And that might sound incredibly obvious, but a lot of the time lawyers like to produce things that they think are useful, but are not necessarily useful. And it's a mission that I take away and that I kind of staple to my, uh, to the wall above my desk because it, it reminds me all the time. Think of the product that you are producing because if what you give your client is what you think is useful, but actually doesn't advance their position at all, then it's of, of very little value. That's awesome. And I think you've demonstrated that with many of your answers. So it certainly left an impression on you, which is, which is nice to, to, to see. What is the most common myth about your profession that you'd like to debunk when people sort of pigeonhole you guys all into one bucket? What should we know? So Daniel, I think the, the most important myth that I'd like to debunk, certainly as a lawyer, is that the kind of route to success is to go law firm, in-house commercial environment, and to do nothing in between. I had a number of roles in between my time in a law firm and the role that I have now at Budweiser. And actually, I think I did a lot of growing in terms of my understanding of business and in terms of my understanding as a consumer. I did an MBA, which I felt has served me really well because I think more widely about the, the strategy of the, of the business that we're in. So I think that would be my number one message. My other kind of, if I can be allowed a second one very quickly, my other subsidiary message would be that companies that, that operate large global brands, it's a bit of a myth that we don't care about the little guy because we're often painted as being perhaps the Goliath to the David. Uh, we do care about the little guys because the little guys, certainly in our business in beer, are doing some amazing innovations. And really, I pay tribute to microbreweries here in the UK who do an amazing job at developing product and show great enthusiasm, which I know as a beer drinker myself, is hugely appreciated by the public at large. And, and we really respect them. Well, James, it was very interesting to learn about your journey, your insights in the intellectual property space, and I would like to highlight a couple of key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, Budweiser has been a World Cup sponsor since 1986, which brings its own unique challenges and opportunities. As an example, Budweiser is bringing both Welsh and English fans to Qatar as a promotional activity while making sure they are safe and have a great time. Number two, a myth James would like to debunk about lawyers is that the role to success isn't necessarily just law firms to in-house counsel positions, but rather James had a number of roles in law firms, policy-making organizations, and in-house counsel roles, and even took time out to get his MBA. He believes he did a lot of growing within these periods, and it has shaped his professional career that has made him successful today. Well, that's it for us today. If you liked what you heard, check out our next inspiring personal story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.